Well, the church, meaning just the Christians everywhere, there's a calendar that a lot of churches go by. They call it the Christian calendar. And on the Christian calendar, the start of the year is the season we call Advent. This Christmas season is the start of the year. And I think we're off to a great start as a church, evidenced by this. We're just sending more, another team to RS. It's the second team we've sent this year. That's so exciting. And then to have, um, have the directors have just been up here a couple weeks ago. I love that we're getting a real partnership, that it's, that it's happening. That's so exciting to me. Um, I am thrilled when Jennifer said all the toy tags are gone. How cool is that? All the toy tags for the Ace in the City toy drive are gone. So make sure you bring the toys back if you grabbed a tag. Uh, They're due a week from today, but that is awesome. Um, I've been working on the budget. That's always so much fun, isn't it? Budgets. Working on the budget, our church budget for the family budget here for 2015. If we have a strong December, we are going to finish between 2 and 3% of bullseye on our budget. And if you were there at our, our last, our last uh, annual meeting, we had said there were two budgets. There was the conservative budget that we weren't going to spend more unless more came in. And then there was the bigger end budget. The bullseye is on the bigger end budget. So way to go. If we have a strong December, we're going to finish within 2 to 3% of our, uh, of our budget. That's awesome. Um, Jennifer mentioned that we're, we're now to the place with the search finally with the youth director where we're taking applications. So from between now and January 16th, we're taking applications for our first full-time youth director. That is exciting. Um, late this week, if you're on our ECC mail list, you got, uh, got that little paragraph in there that was really loaded, about five of our staff that are transitioning in one way, shape, or form, but it's all great news. You know, Laura's like, you know, you should probably say something about that because it's going to look like there's a church split going on or something. It's all good. It's all good. Mike and Dan and Emily are all choosing family over extra work. I mean, that's great. We're going to affirm that. Um, Nick got a full-time job at his church in Iowa, his home church in Iowa. So how awesome is that? We're, yeah. Nick is going to be speaking next week, and we'll pray for him. But, you know, we're going to miss him, but... Full-time gig at your home church, that's, that's awesome. And then ACE has grown to the point where it's going to require Tim's full-time attention. So Tim will be transitioning between now and May. We've got a nice long transition here. But between now and May, Tim will be transitioning to a full-time gig with ACE. So it's all, it's all good. What a great way to start our year. All of these good, good things. All right, well, speaking of Christmas, it's the start of the church year. It's also something that's probably on your minds a little bit. Uh, Laura and I were out Christmas shopping this week, and while we were out, uh, this card caught my eye. It's not a Christmas card. It was just a card I saw on a rack at a store, and here I am being my hand model uh, and photographer, all kinds of great skills. Um, It says this. I love this quote. uh, Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. If you've ever been a parent, if you've ever been a coach, if you've ever been a CEO, if you've ever been a teacher, if you've ever been in one of these positions where you got all these people giving you advice, um, this is a great, great, great quote. Um, One of the things I love about this quote, it's an example of brilliant brevity. In just two sentences, this person, Miles Kington, is able to take something that you you could make a whole seminar based off of this, two sentences. He took something so rich and he boiled it down to just two sentences. And I think that makes the Bible all the more amazing. 
because the Bible is filled with so much brilliant brevity. The Bible is, is packed with brilliant brevity. It's packed with symbols and signs that seem so simple on the surface, but when you start to go deeper and deeper into the layers, oh, it's so, so, so rich. And this morning, what I'm going to attempt to do, I'm going to take my best 30-minute shot here at unpacking an example of brilliant brevity that's embodied in Luke's Christmas account. Last week, I gave you a little background on Luke. Luke was a real first-century physician who set out to learn the truth about Jesus of Nazareth. His authorship was uncontested, and his scholarship is exemplary. And in Luke's account of the first Christmas, that's where we find the information about the shepherds. Each of the Gospels has some overlap. Each of the Gospels has some unique material. And Luke has the unique material about the shepherds. They play a central role in Luke's Christmas account. And I want to present to you that it is an example of brilliant brevity. In fact, I just, I was agonizing over this message because I'm like, I hope I can, I hope I can, through, with God's help, bring some of the richness to light. When you, when you see that little shepherd there on your manger scene, Oh, there is so much there. These particular shepherds were tending their flocks in the fields just outside the city of David, and that's significant. In the ancient Near East, shepherding was a lowly profession, and that's significant. In the ancient Near East, the term shepherd could also refer to a ruler or a leader or a governor or a king, and that's significant. And the baby that the shepherds found lying in a manger would one day grow up to be the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. All this to say the presence, the symbolism, the history, all of the everything surrounding Luke's account of the shepherds it is a powerful example of brilliant brevity. And it comes to us from a God who graciously sends us these signs to point us to himself. So, let's open up our Bibles. If you have a Bible with you, let's open up to the account, uh, Luke's Easter account, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. We're going to be looking at this passage several times between now and Christmas, um, especially for those who haven't looked at this before. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one today on your way out. You can just grab one of the Bibles. We keep them at each of those tables on your way in or out, depending on if you're coming in or out, and they're there for you. So, please take one of those as a gift. All right, here we go. Luke chapter 20, verses 1, or Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of what? David, just remember that, which is called Bethlehem, remember that too, because he was of the house and lineage of David, that's important, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and lied him, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field, shepherds out in the field, in that same region, keeping watch over their flock by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great news, or good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby 
wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. That's the one he said last week. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told concerning this child. And all who heard wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And when the shepherds returned, they glorified God, praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. It was so hard. I'm reading through this. I'm like, oh, that one's loaded too. Night. That one's loaded. Angels. That one's loaded. Mary. Oh, all this. There's so much here. And what we're going to try to do is just focus in on the shepherds today and just some of the richness, richness that is indicated by the shepherds. All right, let's dig in. Let's say you are the creator of the universe. You want to communicate a profound truth, and you want to do it in a simple way, a universal way. Shepherds, way to go. That that is a brilliant way to go. If I would have had more time this week, uh, I would have caught this earlier. If you have your notes, I want to encourage you to write this down. There's not a place to fill in this blank, but this is as important as any of these talk points. I encourage you to write this down, write fast, because we're going to cover a lot of ground here in a short period of time. But if you're going to start with a, a symbol, if, you, if you're going to try to communicate something, if you're going to do the whole brilliant brevity thing, one of the things that would make it brilliant is to pick a, a metaphor or a sign or a starting point that most people can understand. And I would say shepherds is one of those. Almost everyone knows who, a shep- who shepherds are and what shepherds do. And when I say almost everyone, I'm saying almost everyone throughout history on, on almost every place on the planet. The profession itself can be traced back to the dawn of humanity. You know, if you have your Bible, you might want to turn to, I think it's Genesis 4-2. And look at, you've got the first people, you've got Adam and Eve. They have two sons. One of them's named Abel. Abel was a keeper of what? Sheep. Abel was a keeper of sheep. One of the very, as long as we've had people, as long as we've had professions, you've got shepherds. Shepherding has been practiced on just about every continent or just, and just about as long as people have inhabited these continents. Most of the people who've ever lived have at least a basic understanding. What is a shepherd and what a shepherd does? So the creator of the universe selected an almost universal means to convey truth, but he didn't stop there. Here's another point that I encourage you to write down. God orchestrated history to bring about Jesus' birth in the city of David. What does this have to do with shepherds? Hang on, we'll get there. In the ancient Near East, your birthplace, let's say you're born in the ancient Near East. Wherever you were born, you were going to be as close to a shepherd as we are to a lake in Minnesota, all right? I mean, shepherds were all over the place there, right? But what Luke does is he connects Jesus' birth, not just to any collection of shepherds, he connects Jesus' birth to a specific group of shepherds who are just outside of what town? Bethlehem. That connects what's happening to these ancient prophecies. Here's an example of an ancient prophecy. This comes from the prophet Micah in what we call today Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. All right, so there, there's a shepherd link here. In days gone by, Bethlehem was home to a shepherd boy named David. And the ancient prophecies foretold that the Messiah would be not just born in this place, but he would actually be a descendant of this shepherd boy, David. Here's an example of that. This comes out of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, starting with verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock, you have driven them away, you've not attended to them. I want to hit pause here. This is an example of where I was saying that in the ancient Near East, shepherds weren't just the shepherds of sheep. That term also referred to shepherds of people. And here we see one example of many, this, this warning to those who are entrusted with leadership over God's people, do it well. And here he's saying you're not. You shepherds are not doing a great job of caring for my people. And David is a person who started out as a shepherd of sheep and then became leader the shepherd, the king, over God's people. Okay, so let's continue reading, picking back up with Jeremiah 23, verse 2. Uh, two. Uh, Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, he's saying of these other shepherds. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. And they will fear no more, nor shall be they dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for who? David, a righteous branch. Meaning, I'm going to have a descendant of David come into this role, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, I've just said a whole lot of words, but if you're a person who needs facts before you can take a step of faith, reflect on these words. Reflect on these actions. The locations and the circumstances of Jesus' birth, they're a sign for everyone with eyes to see. Again, now let's go back to, to Luke, just one sentence, one verse, Luke 2.8. And, and try to think about this when it says in the same region there were shepherds. And in the same region, in the vicinity of the city of David, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. This is loaded, isn't it? It is loaded. Think about all the chess pieces that God had to get into place to make this happen. This one little thing that's so easy, this one sentence, it's so easy to just fly through it. Think about all of the things that God had to do, orchestrate, to make this happen. Jesus' birth was perfectly timed with a Roman census, a Roman census that brought a Jewish couple to the city of David so that a descendant of the shepherd boy David, who became shepherd of the nation of Israel, could be born in close proximity to shepherds who were watching over flocks, possibly in the very same fields where David had once watched over sheep himself. And this baby, who the shepherds would bear witness to, would become the good shepherd that the ancient prophecies spoke of. All that is here in this one verse. It's brilliant. It's a lot briefer than I can be. All right. 
Let's talk about another sign. As Luke's narrative continues, there's more signs that come forth and, and that are linked to shepherds, including this one. I'd encourage you to write this down. God, when he sent his messengers, his angels, he sent his messengers to lowly shepherds. One day, if we go back in time before this event, one day when the shepherd boy, David, was tending his flock, a message came to him. David's out in the fields watching over his flocks. A message comes to him. Samuel the prophet. Samuel the great prophet has a word from the Lord for you. And David responded and went to have that, to hear that message that he was going to be anointed king. Now, I don't know if these were the same fields, but they might have been. The, the same field where the angels brought their message to the shepherds could be the same fields where David was when he got this message from the Lord many years earlier. We don't know for sure that, but here's what we do know. Just as there was a big gap between lowly shepherd David, great prophet Samuel, there was an even greater gap between lowly shepherds and angels. Angels, man, creation has never seen more mysterious or exalted beings than angels. And I'm talking about created beings here. Of all the people that these angels could have appeared to, they appeared to shepherds. Most shepherds, they're near the bottom of the social scale, right? Blue collar, that's one thing. How many of you have ever worn farm boots? All right, right? All right, we're proud. You know what I'm talking about then, right? There's blue collar, and then there's farm boots, right? Most shepherds were poor. They were often uneducated. They were considered spiritually unclean by the religious elite. So when the Christ child arrived, you've got these shepherds, right? And they're receiving the first invitation of Jesus' birth. They get the first one. Maybe the Magi star. You could probably be a contender there. But they received the first invitation to, to get there. They got there first. If you feel that you're the last person on earth that God would have a message for, the last person on earth that God would extend an invitation to, there's a sign here, and it's the sign of the manger. Luke doesn't even mention the magi, but he mentions the manger three times, and he calls it a sign. And here's another sign. I'd encourage you to write this down. There's not just a sign for those who feel I'm on society's margins. Why would God ever talk to me? There's a sign here for people who are on the other end of the scale. God provided an example for the exalted shepherds. He did that as well. Remember, the term shepherd can also refer to those who hold exalted positions. And what you have is you've got Jesus, the king of kings, arriving in this manger. And as he grows, Luke does an exceptional job of this. Luke, as much or more than any of the other gospel writers, shows specific example after example after example of Jesus coming to serve and not to be served. He's reaching out to people on the margins of that society all the time. He's constantly reaching out to women, reaching out to children, reaching out to the poor, reaching out to the sick, reaching out to those who are considered unclean. You've got this example, if you're an exalted shepherd, of when the king of kings came to earth, he came to serve and lay down his very life for his sheep. That is a sign for every person of influence to see. And it's a sign that brings us right into our next talk point. The good shepherd became the sacrificial lamb. Wow. Exactly. I believe this is the most profound shepherd-related sign of them all. The shepherds that were out in those particular fields 
in that particular region were quite possibly the very same shepherds that kept watch over lambs that would be sacrificed in Jerusalem. Now, here's something that I found interesting. I, I never connected these specific dots before. If you go back in time and you look at Jewish law, you'll come across this law in the book of Leviticus. Let me show you this. Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Um, you give birth, right? So you give birth, and then here's this instruction after that. When the days of the woman's purifying are completed, she shall bring a what? Bring a lamb and a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. But if she can't afford it, if, if the family doesn't have enough money for a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. Let's fast forward now to Luke's account. Luke is, he said, I'm going to set out, I'm going to do this orderly, in-depth, you know, accurate uh, um, record of, of the events surrounding Jesus. Okay, when, when Luke explores this, this is Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Look what Luke says when Mary got to the point where she's supposed to do this instruction from the scriptures. When the time came for their, Mary and Joseph, baby, purification according to the law of Moses, which we just read, they brought Jesus to Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Bethlehem, they're real close to one another. So they go to Jerusalem to present Jesus to the Lord, and they offered what? Did they offer a lamb? No, they couldn't afford a lamb. They offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Here's the thought that never hit me before. There was no lamb sacrificed for Jesus. You've got this flock. You've got these shepherds, right, watching their fields in Bethlehem, flock by night. Where if you're going to buy a lamb? Where are you going to buy a lamb? You're going to buy a lamb from these guys. Hey, before you guys go, can we, get, can we get a lamb? Can we get one cheap? You know, maybe you can give us a deal here, maybe a present. We can work something out, right? No lamb was sacrificed for Jesus. We, yeah, that's right. No lamb. My daughters love that right there. They love all the don't kill the sheep kind of thing. You know, they love that, right? Two little girls. That's caught my attention. No lambs were sacrificed from Bethlehem's flocks on Jesus' behalf. Instead, on a hill just outside of Jerusalem, Jesus himself would become the sacrificial lamb. Now, Jesus had a relative named John, in case you think I'm stretching this too far. John could see things that others couldn't about Jesus. Here's one of the things that Jesus saw, or John saw, about Jesus. This is from the book of John, John's testimony. Um, this is not the same John who said this, a different John. Behold, what does John, the baptizer, say about, about Jesus? He's the what? The Lamb of God. Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You didn't have to sacrifice this Lamb for Jesus. He's the Lamb that came to sacrifice himself for the sin of the world. And again, there's, this is so rich because this is connected to another of these ancient prophecies. Here's one from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He... It's, pre it's predicting this Messiah, the one that was to come. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a what? A lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. <laughs> and again, maybe you've seen all these things before, but if not, are you beginning to see why the shepherds serve as such an example of brilliant, brilliant brevity. There is so much profound truth that is either embodied in who the shepherds were or where they were. The sign of the shepherds is a profound sign for all who have eyes to see. 
It's as close as you're going to come to a universal sign. People of almost every tribe and tongue and nation, they know what a shepherd is or know what a shepherd does, or you can quickly explain it to them. It's, as, it's for those who need facts. Before they can take a step of faith, there's the sign that God aligned history with his story, that God is great enough to do that. For those who are on society's margins, those who feel like there's no way God would ever speak to me or provide an invitation to me, there's the sign of the manger. For those who are in power or influential positions, there's a sign there too. Hey, you shepherds, here's what shepherding looks like that is honoring to God. And then for all of us, all of us who sinned against our creator, there's the sign of the shepherd who became the lamb. And that's the sign that this prophet Isaiah foretold, Isaiah 53, 6. We all like sheep, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his or her own way. And the Lord has laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. So here's the question that I want to leave us with today before we offer an opportunity to, to come forward for communion. Will you follow these signs to the cross? There are all of these signs. All of this is loaded in the shepherd's Will you place your trust in the God who can conform history to his story? Will you place your trust in a God who humbled himself and came and was laid in a manger? Will you place your trust in a, in a God who taught us? He taught us. A good shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep and then place your trust in the God that did that, who became the sacrificial lamb for us. You know, will you humble yourself? That's what it means. That's what the cross means. The cross is this sign for us. Another one of these, you talk about loaded. The cross is as loaded as you get. It's this sign of, will you follow the example of Jesus? Will you trust us that at the end of a death, there's a resurrection? If you were to lay down your whole life Give it all up, all your dreams, all your ambitions, everything that you want to hold on to, everything that you say that's yours. Will you trust God to say, here it is, here's everything, including my failures, especially my failures. Here's everything. I lay it before you. That's my old life. This day, right here, right now, I want the new life, this gift of new life that comes from you and receiving that gift and walking out of here. Resurrected. That's the invitation. So let's pray to that end. And then um, I want to offer you this opportunity to respond in, in something that we call communion or participate in something we call communion. Let's pray first. Lord, thank you for this season. Thank you that you inspired people long ago to make a big deal out of Jesus' birth. Lord, help us to just let go of all of the, the silliness that we're taught by so many people. All the silliness that, that, that Christmas should be um, marginalized because it's connected to timing that is related to other holidays that were in, in existence. Help us to let go of all that silliness and be thankful that there were men and women who said, let's have a Christ mass. Let's pause and let's celebrate the birth of Jesus 
thank you for them and thank you that there were people that had wisdom and foresight to say, let's make that the beginning of the Christian year where we can start the year off right and we can come to this manger, to this profound event and we can say, I want to receive that Christ child into my life that I too may be born again. So Lord, may we seize this moment May we seize this moment and we may we yield everything to you right here, right now. We pray, Father, that we would yield our, our futures, that we would yield the possessions that really aren't ours anyway. We would yield all the talents that you've given us, everything that you've given us. And Lord, may we lay down our failures and our mistakes. May we just bring those before you and lay them out there because you've seen them anyway and ask for your forgiveness so that we can have this resurrection that happens right here, right now. That a new self, a new start, a fresh life can emerge from that death of the old one. One that doesn't rest on our merit, but rests on your merit and what you did on that cross. The perfect sacrifice that can atone for any sin. Lord, let us receive that gift right here, right now, and celebrate it together. Bring to mind, as we pray these prayers to prepare ourselves for communion, bring to mind anything, Father, anything and everything that we should lay down. As specific as you, you want to make it, Holy Spirit. And then give us the courage to, before we come forward for communion, and say, okay, right here, right now, I yield it to God. I lay it down that I could be born again. Speak to us now in this holy moment. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do want to give you an opportunity to respond with communion. Communion is another one of those loaded deals, right? In fact, it's so loaded that different faith traditions, can't, we, we can't even agree on what to call it. Some of us call it the Eucharist. You got it. That's great. Isn't Eucharist mean like Thanksgiving or something like that? Some people call it the Lord's Supper or gathering on the Lord's table. Isn't that beautiful? It is that. Some of us call it Holy Communion. We're communing in a sacred way with God and each other. Is there anything wrong with that? No. No one of them can fully encapsulate the wonder of what we're commemorating right now. It's so loaded. We're commemorating this event as it's uh, written in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Lord Jesus, on that very night where he was betrayed, he took bread when he had given thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often, as often as you eat this bread and drink this from the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. And then the Bible goes on to teach that this is not something you just do flippantly. And that's why we always pause before the sacrament. And we ask for you to take some time to reflect and to, to lay down those things that God would have you to lay down. So we do that all together. And then what we've started to do now the last, I think, couple times is we, when I get done and we get done praying, we're going to have a little instrumental for you to personalize this. We'll take a whole song before we even have our communion servers get in place. And then once the communion servers are in place after that first song, you're invited to come forward, and there won't be an usher that says, now it's your turn, now it's your turn, now it's your turn. We want it to be a deliberate decision on your part. So when you see the communion service get in place, we invite you to come forward. It'd be smoothest to come forward through the center aisle. That way we can have a better flow, but we're just excited for you to come forward. 
So let's prepare our hearts and minds together, and then we want to give you a chance to personalize that. So here's some prayers that we, we often pray together before we receive communion. Not every time, but often. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to whom all hearts and minds are open and all desires are known, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may more perfectly love you and more worthily magnify your holy name. We confess that we are sinners and cannot save ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. We are not worthy for these gifts which we are about to receive, but say the word and we will be made clean. Let's consecrate this time. God, we do consecrate this time. We ask that you will do it because what you touch becomes clean. We can't make you unclean. It is you who touches us and makes us clean. So take these elements now, this juice, this bread, make it for us, your body and your blood. Pray that in Jesus' name. And we also, as one more act together here, we, we pray a prayer that you taught your disciples to pray that has been handed down to us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. What we've just done together, now you do that personally. All right?